So a bit of a change of pace this morning happening. Um, before we get there, though, here's, here's a thought. Perspective, isn't that a useful thing? Do you, do you find this? Perspective. They say that hindsight is 2020. What are they saying when they say that? They're saying that when we look back on things that are now finished, that somehow that, that allows you to perceive things more accurately than you did at the time. Right? We tend to see things of the past more clearly than we see things in the present. For example, it is clear to everybody, all and sundry today, that skinny jeans were never a good idea. But at the time, yeah, they seemed like at least plausible. Um, but now, with perspective, we can all be glad that that blight has ended. A more serious illustration. Um, I was talking with Elise just, I think it was yesterday or the day before, uh, about how much I would love to be young again. That's an admission that I'm not that anymore. It's happened. Why? Because my perspective on myself during those years was so unhealthy. And I can see that now. I can, I can see um, how a kind of unhealthy self-concept was, was crippling. I believed a lot of lies about who I was. And over time, the Lord has done so much to heal those things and to raise me up into maturity. And I'd kind of like to have another go at living healthy through those years um, how different things would be, and I, I suppose I've got to leave that to the Lord and, and trust that he knew what he was doing. Perhaps I would have just been the worst monster imaginable if I just had a bit more confidence when I was young. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at our lives in a way that I hope gives us some perspective. We're going to look at ourselves hoping that we perceive clearly. Uh, as a church, we've been making our way through the book of Nehemiah, which has been wonderful. And next week will be our last sermon in the book of Nehemiah. It's our last time in the book together. But with no evening service happening this week and so many away, um, we thought it would be a shame for them to miss out on the end of this book that we've been in together for so long. Um, and so we want to wait until next week to finish it together. Yeah, spoilers. It's a horrible anticlimax. It's really worth doing, but it's going to disappoint you. All of this presents us with an opportunity. What are we going to do today? Well, with uh, recent events, what I've, wanting, what I've been wanting to do, and I'm glad to have the chance to do it, is to look at one of those big picture of life kind of passages. It just feels like the right time to do that. Like for, it's a good moment for us to all stop and to just take stock of how we are living um, in light of what's been happening in the life of our congregation. We, we've had uh, a funeral we're expecting some more in the near future. And funerals are always a significant moment in our lives. They should be. They're an important thing because they represent an opportunity to stop and to reflect and to get perspective. They're a perspective moment. I don't know if you've realized this, if this is what you came to hear this morning, but it turns out that we are mortal. It's, it's a very important thing about humans. It's like there's an invisible clock ticking down over all of our heads, and one day that clock will run out. It's a cheery thought, isn't it? What wisdom does is wisdom takes the knowledge of that future certainty and lives life today in light of that very real thing, inescapable truth. It allows, wisdom allows that knowledge to give shape to what is important in life today. It seems to me that the current trend is to kind of go the other way with the problem of death. Uh, to, to kind of 
play it down or ignore it or sort of like distract ourselves as convincingly as possible so that we don't need to think about it. That seems to be the main way that our culture gives, uh, deals with death. And then when it finally comes across our paths, we lose a loved one, uh, we, we begin to experience our own mortality. It's something of a shock to us. I never thought it would be me, we think. Today, we are going to avoid that mistake <laughs> by taking an opportunity to consider our finiteness uh, and to ask, am I living wisely in light of that reality? And so in order to do that, we're going to turn to the letter of 2 Timothy, found at the back end of your New Testament. You can turn there now. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. What makes the letter of 2 Timothy really significant in your Bibles is that chronologically speaking, these are the last words of Paul that we have in the Bible. It is quite possible that this is the last letter that he ever wrote. Uh, this was written from prison in Rome. Probably not the, the imprisonment recorded at the end of Acts, but a later imprisonment under Nero. Uh, and tradition tells us that Nero is the one who put Paul to death. As Paul was writing these words, he expected, and it turns out was right, that he was going to die soon at the hands of the Roman emperor. And so, we are reading, this morning, some of the last words of an apostle. This letter was written to Paul's disciple and friend, his, uh, his comrade-in-arms, Timothy, who was still ministering in all of the churches that Paul had spent his life establishing. And this letter is Paul giving his final instructions to Timothy about what he wants him to do now that Paul is not going to be a part of the picture. He is preparing Timothy to do ministry in the post-Pauline world. Um, what does he do? He gives him his final instructions about what to do. He urges him to continue on with the ministry and to build upon the foundation of Paul's labor. The letter has a, a very personal tone, a very warm tone, and, and importantly, a very joyful tone. So here we can listen to Paul's heart laid bare in the most vulnerable of times. Uh, and we'll be starting from verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I love that verse so much, by the way. It's just as a bit of a side note. If you were trying to impress upon someone the weight of what comes next, <laughs> what better job could you do than that? Timothy in the presence of God and Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, I charge you by his appearing and by his kingdom to do this thing. I, I think we could say that the next sentence needs an exclamation mark. Wouldn't that be fair? What does he want him to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out 
as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's pretty good last words. That's better than such is life. This is a man living without regret. That's important. That matters. That's remarkable. Do you remember that earlier in his life, the Apostle Paul had written to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9 and told them this. He said to them, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And so run in such a manner that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The man who had said that is now sitting here at the other end of his life. And what is he thinking? Ah, I missed it. I failed. Life was about this and I did this. No, that's not what he's thinking about. He's thinking, I did it. I made it. I wouldn't change a thing. When looking at his coming death, after taking stock of his life, after looking at his life with the perspective of hindsight, his conclusion is, The things which have been important in my life remain the important things today. He has built his life on Jesus. And now that he is at the end of his life, that appears to him to be a good decision. Of course it does. Of course it does. Can you imagine what it would be like when it is your turn on that day Perhaps you'll have the opportunity to know that the end is coming. To not want any of the principles of your life to change. Paul is so confident of the way in which he has lived that not only would he not change anything major, but he is determined to make sure that Timothy lived the same kind of life as well. I did it. It was right. Join me. What creates that kind of confidence? It turns out that Paul has been living his life in light of eternity. How reassuring that knowledge must be. Brothers and sisters, we we are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace without works. And yet at the same time, it remains true that with godliness... There is great gain. There is a benefit. (laughs) There is a point. It matters that we live in line with the truth. Don't you want that kind of confidence and certainty? Don't you want that kind of deep, soul-satisfying peace that your life is built on the things of first importance? Don't you want the knowledge 
that you didn't waste your life. That you lived for the right things. You only get one shot at this. Because you can have it. That is yours in Christ to lay hold of. I think here in First Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 4, Paul has given us at least four big clues about where that confidence comes from. The first one we see is that a life built on trusting God's word is a life well lived. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Why? Because a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul wants Timothy to focus on one thing above all in his ministry. Preach the words. And by the word, we mean the Bible, the Old and New Testaments delivered to us through Moses, the prophets and the apostles. At the core of the wrestle for people's eternity lies their response to God. And at the core of their response to God lies their response to his word. Those who are saved are the ones who hear God's word and respond in repentance and faith. And those who will be condemned are the ones who hear and reject what God has to say about life. In the teaching of Jesus, believing the word and believing in God are synonymous. They're the same thing. In John 5, we read his rebuke against unbelieving Israel. He said to them, The Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. They're the same thing. You don't have his word living in you, Because you don't believe in me. You search the scriptures, he says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The big question that hangs over each and every one of our lives is, do we believe God's word and entrust ourselves to God's purpose revealed to us in that word. Do we know what it says? That's part one. And part two, do you bank on it? Do you believe it in such a way that you have trusted yourself to it? We have this concept of belief, don't we? That it's about giving, it's the way the education system works. That that belief is about understanding a principle and being able to regurgitate it at will. I believe a thing is true, which means that in my mind I have said, yes, that is true. That's not, that's a, that is an insufficient definition of belief. It's been said that when you came in here this morning and you began to lower your weight down towards those problematically comfortable pews, 
at some point you reached what we could call the point of no return. Depending on your age and level of fitness, that point, it's a variable height. But at some point, we're going down no matter what. At that point, you have entrusted yourself to the chair. You have believed in the chair. That is the kind of belief that we need in God's word. The belief that gets to the point of no return and says, yes, I'm doing this. We're going down. And so the big question that hangs over our lives is, do we believe that God's word is true? Do we trust it? Are we building our lives on this word? There's a great illustration there of human nature, isn't there? In 2 Timothy 4. It applies everywhere, which means, unfortunately, it also applies in the church. That part of human nature is that we want to hear the things that we want to hear, and we do not want to hear the things that we do not want to hear. That the mind justifies what the heart wants. That's the easy way to do life. This is the principle that was playing out in the exile that we've been hearing so much about as we made our way through the book of Nehemiah. As Israel was descending into its final stages of unbelief, before God unleashed his judgment on them in the exile, he sent his prophets to them to warn them of what was coming and to call them into repentance. One of the big problems is that the word of God, which was delivered through the prophets at that time, was being opposed by false prophets. Rebellious priests, false teachers who told the people not to listen to the Lord's prophets. No, I've got a word, and it's a good word to share with you. Yahweh approves of everything about us. There is no need to be worried. <laughs> Jeremiah <laughs> was called to speak into that situation just before the exile. God speaking through Jeremiah says, From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest... Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. Do you feel it? So much <laughs> stands 
or falls based on whether or not you or I believe God's word and entrust ourselves to it. On his last day, Paul looks at a life of faith and is without regret. Will we be able to say the same? Truth is found in God's word. It is true in season when it is popular. And it is true out of season when it is unpopular. The only safe way to live is to build your life on his word and to trust everything it says. Not to pick or choose what is palatable or convenient. Our time in which we live is no different to theirs in the exile. We are human just like they are human. In our day, there is a growing trend of scoffing at God's word. Not just outside of the church, but inside of it. Liberal Christianity is no new thing. But I have noticed even in my time in ministry that it seems like church leaders are rushing to deny as much of God's truth as they can whilst still trying to claim the name of Christian. If you want to find someone to tell you in God's name that every decision that you make is the right one and it really is all about you, it is not difficult to find them. Their churches tend to be the largest. Don't fall for it. That way lies disaster. Lying on your deathbed, the lies that we tell ourselves will prove to be hollow things. They will offer you no comfort at all. Lies cannot save you. But Jesus really can. It is wise to trust him. And so here's the first call. Know his word and bank on it. In season and out of season. Paul tells us another source of of his confidence. Comes to us in verse 5. He says to Timothy. As for you. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. We're going to pull two things out of here. And the first is the call to endure suffering. Endure suffering. Why does this need to be said? (laughs) I'm the bearer of bad news today. It turns out that it is necessary that if you are going to follow Jesus in this life, that you will need to endure suffering. Sadly, in this fallen world, suffering isn't optional, especially if you are going to follow Christ. It is part of the Christian life. Jesus knows he did it first. Take heart. Your suffering does not automatically mean that something has gone wrong between you and God. With that said, we need to hear that the avoidance of hardship is not the goal of the Christian faith. 
It's necessary that you know that. Avoid it if you can. We aren't gluttons for punishment. We aren't sadists. But on the hierarchy of what is important in life, pain avoidance is not at the top of our list. There are more important things than being comfortable. Rather, we are all called, you and I, to endure suffering. To have suffering enter into our lives, to accept it as necessary, accept that it has a role to play in the life of faith, and to press on towards the goal regardless. Nobody has ever served God in this world without suffering. Did you know that suffering is one of the things that can lead you away from living for Jesus? It's a really common one. Maybe I should say, did you know that your response to suffering can lead you away from living for Jesus? Because if your goal in life is to avoid it, you will have to reject the Lordship of Christ in order to get there. Jesus highlights this for us in the parable of the soils. Remember the parable of the soils? He says the sower sows the word, lands on different kinds of soil. Some of the word lands on a kind of soil which he calls rocky ground. This is what he explains to us in Mark 4 that that means. He said these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves They endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. It has always been true that persecution and suffering for believing in Jesus causes some to punk out and give up. That has been the decisive moment that some decided that Jesus wasn't worth it. They build their lives on something else. And lying on their deathbed, I'm sure each and every one of them regrets that decision. Know this in advance. Standing on the word will lead you into conflict with the world. Here is a call to endure. Suffering is a part of the life of faith. It makes us like Jesus, who suffered on our behalf. Do you want that confidence on the last day? We're just going to need to accept it. Here's the next call. A lighter one. I've punched you hard enough. In verse 5, we see another call on Timothy. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Our Timothy is told to do not some ministry, not a ministry, his ministry. Do you see that? Fulfill your ministry. I think we can color in the blanks of what Paul is saying to Timothy, because reading elsewhere... It seems likely that Paul is thinking of an occasion when Timothy received a spiritual gift after some time in prayer. By the laying on of hands, it says, which probably means from Paul in his role as apostle. 
that they prayed that the Lord would supernaturally enable Timothy's ministry and he received a gift, specifically the gift of evangelism, mentioned beside it here in verse 5. Paul is telling Timothy not only to minister the word generally, but to specifically use the gifts that he has been given by God, because that's a very good clue as to what God would have him do in life. Timothy, don't neglect your gift of evangelism given to you by the laying on of hands. Each one of us who becomes a Christian through faith in Jesus is then immediately set apart by God to do ministry. Did you know this? There isn't two kinds of Christian. Those who minister and those who benefit from ministry, there is one kind of Christian and we all minister. We are a kingdom of priests. Which means that there are some things in this world which are common to all of us. There is a general obedience to Christ which is expected of each of us. But it also means that there is some part of the ministry which is specific to you as an individual. This should, this should be something that builds you up and not crushes you. God has gifted you uniquely to serve in his body and to fulfill a role. There are people that he has placed in your life and he wants you to minister his grace to them. It is not for someone else to do. It is yours. When you get to the end of life, this is the other reason why it's really comfortable, it turns out that we are not all gifted identically. God is not an equitable distributor of gifts. He gives various gifts according to His grace. And that means on the last day, my faithfulness will not be judged on whether or not I fulfilled someone else's ministry. That is good news to those of us who have small gifts. <laughs> I can't be Billy Graham. I'm not expected to be. That's good news. But I am expected to fulfill my ministry. That means that I have the job of finding out how it is that God has uniquely gifted me to serve and to figure out how to build that into the routine of my life for all of my days. I am not a steward of your gifts, but I am a steward of mine. And so I should fulfill my ministry. Why would I do this? Let's cut back to Paul. Lying on his deathbed, looking at his life in hindsight, do you think he's thinking, I just wish I had a faster jet ski? I wish we had built the third bathroom for the kids to have one separate to the neighbors and the cat. I wish I could have spent more time Collecting rare shoes, hard to obtain. No. He was glad for every minute of his life spent in service to his Lord. Well spent. Eternal reward. The shoes don't go with him. The ministry does. 
Ask yourself this. Are you fulfilling your ministry? God has things for you to do. Are you committed to doing them? Are you waiting for permission? (laughs) Are you committed? Is it a priority in your life that you would fulfill your ministry? It is very easy to live for yourself. This is going to be on purpose or it's not going to happen. Are you remembering to look up from the hustle, the bustle, the busyness, and to remember, I have a role to play in the kingdom and I should get on with it? Whatever that is meant to look like for you. There's the third call. And here's the last one. This one's just less about doing and more about remembering. I think the last thing that we see in Paul is that he has lived his life by looking forward. Do you want to get to the right destination? Look up. It's pretty good advice. If you're riding a bicycle, for example, and you're looking at your toes, you will fall off the bicycle or hit something hard. The same goes in life. If you want to reach the right destination in life, Look at the destination, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth, now, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Look to the crown. Look to that day of his pleasure displayed to you. Look to the day of our great reward when you will receive your inheritance and pursue it. Look up and walk forward because we have a certainty upon which to build our lives. That will never be shaken. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for periods of time like this. We thank you for the way in which those who have gone before us in the faith minister to us today. We thank you for the way that Paul cared for Timothy. Father, we thank you for the way that ours have ministered to us. We think of Judy, that she ministered to us even now by reminding us to look up and to live for the right things. Father, as we hear this, no doubt today there will be some of us who do the inevitable, who notice that this is not how we are living who feel the crisis that that creates in our hearts. And in that moment, Father, we pray that you administer to us your grace. We thank you for Jesus, who has come for the undeserving, to rescue and to redeem and to make new. And we pray that this morning we would experience that same restoration. 
our God, would you set us free to do differently in those ways in which we have not been living wisely? Would you forgive the guilt of our sin and the shame of it? And help us to trust that not only is what you have said generally true, but what you have said about me is true. And that in the Son, I am washed, I am new, and I am useful. Father, we pray that we would be a congregation who understands the call of ministry is a body call. It sits on all of us. Father, I pray that all sitting here under the sound of my voice today would get to that day like Paul did with the same confidence, knowing that they have lived well. Help us to secure for ourselves, our God, as much joy as possible in the life to come. By your grace, would you do this thing amongst us, we pray.